uh, Michael and Clark still around? Clark, are you? I saw you earlier. Where are you at? Come on. I, I'd ask these guys. They have a, a fun testimony, and I thought I'd get the message started with uh, a bit of uh, their joint testimony. Yeah, yeah. You want me to set the context? Who's going to set the context? You'll set the context. Um, I'll let him share the word. But um, a few weeks ago, I was talking to my sister. She lives in Maryland. And she's like, hey, I want you to come visit me. But don't. And so I said, okay, I'll come the second week of May. And for those of you, many of you don't know her, but her and I are very different. She told me, don't come this week. There's supposed to be a giant swarm of cicadas. For those of you who know the East Coast, every 17 years, a giant swarm of like millions of cicadas come out of the ground and they just fly everywhere and go crazy. They're massive. Yeah, they're, they're really scary for some people. But yeah. And so then I told her, oh, maybe I should come right then. That sounds kind of fun. Um, so then I was praying about it, like, okay, when should I visit? Um, and I never concluded when I was supposed to come out and visit her. And then I came to church on Sunday, and Clark had a word for me, and this was his word. Right on. So, yeah, I haven't always heard from God for other people. Um, since a kid, people would share God's words with me. And I just remember like one time when I was 13, someone sharing something that they uh, wanted to share, that God shared with them, that they wanted to share with me, and it just rocked my world. But I never just thought like that I could do that for other people. That was like, you know, uh, someone who was like moving and sharing prophecy and words, and they came to our church and, and you know, imparted that. So I just didn't think that that was like a thing that we can do. Um, so over the years, I was just never thought it. Um, until about um, eight years ago, um, I just started like learning, like, no, we could do that for each other. Like, we can hear directly from God. And so just started exercising that muscle eight years ago. And then, yeah, me, Michael, and Tony were just praying right over here. It was just this really cool time of prayer. And all of a sudden, I just kind of got this thing of like, I think God wants me to share this with Michael. But it's kind of random, and I think maybe it's just in my head. Maybe I shouldn't share it. But I'm like, okay, I'll go ahead. So I said, Michael, I, I get this picture of these locusts. And I know it sounds like really biblical, and you, you know, we don't really have locusts in the United States. I think it sometimes happens in other countries. But I get the sense of you like going into this area where it's just infested with locusts everywhere. And I know it probably isn't landing with you, but I just feel like God wants you to hear this. And he's going to take you up on this hill. And the, when you're with the locusts, it's just going to be all consuming and everyone's consumed and overwhelmed. And then he takes you up on this hill and you get away from the locusts and you come back refreshed. And you're able to just do something with the people that are being surrounded by locusts. So there it is. Just take, take what, what you want and... Needless to say, I bought my flight for the exact week of the locust spread, so there it is. Uh, amen. Give them a hand. That was, that was awesome. So Sue's sister, Sarah, actually got married uh, during, like, the most intense week of the 17-year cicadas, and we were dating at the time, and I was trying to really impress the family. So I, I spent, like, multiple days with, a, like, a wet vac in the yard just sucking up dead cicadas while they continued to, like, zip into your face and your side and everything. I mean, during the wedding, she's literally batting them off of her sister's veil and wedding dress and all that. They're, they're not just, like 
few here and there. It's literally like you're in the middle of a swarm, and they had an outdoor wedding in the middle of that. So anyway, when they, when they shared that with me, I'm like, someone needs to hear that, you know. And, and you know, what I love about that is that it's, it's the simple thing of, like, Clark being reminded, like, if you, if you just have the most simple, practical, or biblical, epic, Armageddon-like word for somebody, maybe it's just an encouragement for them to buy a plane ticket to see their sister. And they needed that. Other times it's going to be like life-changing. But the practical ways that we just pick up on God's voice and we make spaces so that we can kind of take some risks and, and release it knowing that we're imperfect, but God speaks through us. And I don't hear perfectly, but I hear enough. And I believe him enough to say that like, I've, got a, I've got a voice to give. And that, that reminds us just who we are. As, as followers of Jesus, we carry the ability to speak life and encouragement to people in a way that reminds them that they're part of the family of God and that God has his eyes on them. Just let that encourage you. All right, and then turn to Luke 10, please. And we're going to do a, hopefully a pretty quick message today. Um, we, we let uh, some of the beautiful worship and words go a little long because it's just that's sometimes the most important thing. But, but go to, to Luke 10. Uh, last week, we looked at the, one of the most common parables, if not the most common parable that Jesus gives uh, on the prodigal son. This week, I'd like to look at the Good Samaritan. And the, the series that, that we're feeling at the moment is, is called Falling in Love Again. I feel in the, in the midst of rebirthing life, church, family out of COVID, that, that we need to fall in love with Jesus afresh. And, and I've just realized that when I go back to the ways that Jesus explains this concept of his rule and his reign and his kingdom and his family, he tells stories. And he tells stories so that people that are having a difficult time hearing and seeing what he's saying and doing, they can start to just be fed these, these images, these parables, that help them start to get a glimpse of fresh. And he, he often takes out the, the systems at bay that are oppressing humanity. And in their day, he's often going after the religious system. And we've got forces, and we've got systems, and we've got ways of life that we have to, as the church, be constantly looking at how is being a follower of Jesus completely subvert the way of the world. And, and, and sometimes we think that that's just like a proclamation of truth. And Jesus was aware that him just sometimes saying things flat out was going to be less effective than if he told a story. And then the problem for us when we have really familiar stories, especially those of Jesus, we often miss the weight that they're supposed to give us. So my heart today is that you would tap into a really familiar story that you've probably heard more times than you can remember, and that it would, it would do something into your heart today that's never been done before. And that the, the ultimate place is that you realize that you're falling in love again. Okay, with the guy that tells the story, not me. If you want to fall in love with me, that's fine. Uh, Luke 10. I want to start with, though, um, defining parables. Uh, Ken Bailey, in his book on seeing through Middle Eastern eyes, he shares that theologians often use illustrations to infuse energy and clarification into their abstract reflections. If you ever try to read a theological book by a really scholarly individual, oftentimes you're like, ah, you know, good effort on the illustration, but I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, illustrations are frequently the sugar coating on this theological pill that seems like it's impossible to understand what the heck you people that are supposed to understand everything, what are you talking about? 
And this guy named Manson uh, said this, and he goes, a metaphor, however, a metaphor, which is what Jesus always gave, metaphors. They're not an illustration of just an idea, but it's a mode of exchanging the understanding of God. The metaphor does more than explain meaning, he says. A metaphor creates meaning. And a parable, especially those of Jesus, as the stories of Jesus, is an extended metaphor and as such is not a delivery system from some great idea. But it's a house in which the reader and listener is invited to take up their home. The parable is a place that you're meant to find a home. Not just, oh, I understand the idea. And I think that is something that we get more through story than anything else. Because we still live in a, in a Western society where ideas rule. And if I understand the concept, then I've been educated. But the way of Jesus isn't for you just to understand a concept. It's for you to enter into a house and a home that he's made and for you to take up residence. So that's the heart this morning. And I, I, was, I was reading an article this week that I thought might be a good illustration. And it was a bad illustration, but a great story. And the, the illustration was there was recently, just in the last couple of weeks, a hiker here in the, somewhere in the Angeles wilderness forests. Well, not really forests, in the rocks and the hikes and things people do outside by themselves that I don't do, obviously, from me trying to explain to you where he was. So this guy's hiking by himself, which is not something I do, unless I'm going to Eaton Canyon on a hike up a mountain and back on a path that many people are on. But there are people, I don't know if you're aware of this, there are people that go out on hikes by themselves into the wilderness and they don't see people for a long time. That's something people do. And, um, and sometimes they, they don't think it through and they get lost. Uh, and, and when that happens... Um, they, they usually have a plan, and, and uh, Dan Kale is here. Dan's not here, is he? he? He always calls his wife and tells the coordinates. I don't know how to figure out coordinates, but there was, this, there was this hiker recently who literally realized he was way off track, and he was a pretty experienced hiker. So he climbs to the highest point. He gets one bar of cell phone coverage, and he takes a picture of where he's at, which is basically just, I should have put the picture up there. The picture is like of his legs in like a couple rocks and some bush. And he's like, I hope this gets through. This is where I'm at. <laughs> and that was his last hope. He was out for like two days. And so uh, I guess the, it, was, it, it was the Forest Service or LAPD or some, you know, organization that helps find people. They, they sent out an alert. And this, this super amazing super nerd, commoner man that likes to utilize like coordinates and, and find mapping with just general technology that he can pull from the internet and apply data. He sees the alert and he goes, oh, I bet I could find that, where that guy's at. <laughs> and he did a few things and then he goes, I think I know where he is. And he sent it to the, to the police and they found him within a few hours. <laughs> and that's why he's alive. <laughs> and I'm like, amazing story, right? This guy had no reason to find the stranger and, and to take care of him and to do all this work and to apply his gift and, and, uh, and to help this guy out. A complete stranger helping a stranger. And it's beautiful. And it like resonates in the human spirit. And here's the problem. We hear stories like that. And then we read the Good Samaritan story. 
We'll read a little bit more of a second. But essentially, if you don't know the story, is this guy gets beat up, and all the people that are supposed to help him, and he's robbed, don't help him. And we're like, and then someone that's not supposed to help him, the Samaritan, helps him. And we're like, oh, can you believe those guys didn't help him? We should all be like the guy that helped him. Help people. Yeah. I help people. But here's the thing. We, people that follow Jesus, there's not one of us that go read the, the story of the Good Samaritan or see someone helping someone and go, oh, I don't know if I would have helped that person. Helping people's bad. You miss the entire weight of what Jesus is doing. Because I don't know a person in the room that if you saw someone beat up on the side of the road that was in agony, you wouldn't stop and help them. Or at least call for help. And because if that's all the story is saying, we don't need the story. Okay, fair enough. Let's keep going. So <clears throat> here's, what, here's the, the, the question I want to ask us. Where's the place you couldn't go if you wanted to justify yourself before God? And that will go to Luke 10. All right, so the, the first thing of this, of this little story here that, that Jesus says is he's being confronted by a person of the religious law. So someone comes up, and, and it says in verse 25 of chapter 10 of Luke, and behold, a lawyer comes up to put Jesus to the test. So the, the reality is these people of the religious law, these people that are well-versed, are constantly trying to pick Jesus' theology, his teaching, and his way of life apart. And the guy comes up to him and asks him a question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, which is a perfectly valid question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? But the first thing we should be pausing with is, what should I do to inherit something? What did the prodigal son inherit? And what did he do to inherit it? He did nothing. He was born. The only thing you do to inherit something is to be born. Or to be adopted. That's the only thing that qualifies you for inheritance, to be born into a family or to be adopted into a family. And that's the picture of the entire kingdom that Jesus gives. Uh, you, don't inherit, you, don't, you don't do eternal life. You don't do anything to inherit it. In fact, the, the question actually sounds stupid to, per, to a person in ancient Near Eastern Palestine. You don't do anything to inherit it. And that's the entire context is not be like the Good Samaritan. It's that you can't do it. And so Jesus then answers him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and ultimately he's saying, lay down everything. And then he adds the neighbor thing in. And there's a lot more I could get into the, the context and what it means and the Deuteronomy sayings and where these phrases originally came from. But the ultimate reality is this guy responds and he says, but desiring to justify himself, meaning that he wanted to seek justification by doing something again. And he goes, well, and who's my neighbor? Which implies the fact that there are people that aren't my neighbor that I don't have to do this for. He's looking for the people that he does not have to lay his life down for. And so Jesus just tells the story. And Jesus tells the story that we know, that there's a man coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and then departed and left him half dead. And then all of a sudden a priest comes, and he was going down the road. 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to, play, to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, bound him up, pouring oil and wine on him. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Note that he couldn't say the name. He couldn't say a Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's supposed to be received with this underlying or overlying tone. Do likewise. You go and try and do that and see how attaining eternal life will be. And I want to give a bit of context to what this story actually meant in the Jewish culture. Uh, and I think there's a slide that has a, like seven different things, seven scenes. It's really small, but, but I'll just kind of point them out and you have like something to look at if you get tired of looking at me. <laughs> there, are, there are seven scenes in this parable. And the first one, and, and kind of, the first one's with the robbers. And you, you see essentially the robbers take something from him. They steal and they injure him. And then what happens is, is the priest comes. And the priest is actually meant to be, uh, this is a, whether this, they actually have debated whether this is a real life thing that happened. Many of Jesus' parables are obviously they didn't happen. But, but this is so close to something that probably happened that it wasn't like this, oh, what a nice little story that Jesus invented. There were versions of this kind of story that were circulating. And the proximity and the context of this story is so familiar that it would have hit to the heart of every Jew that was listening. And what he's saying is, is that the priests who often lived, where were they going? From Jerusalem to Jericho. The priests lived often in Jericho. And they'd come down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the priests were some of the wealthiest in society for many reasons. So the priests had plenty of money. They would not have been walking. They would have been riding. He would have had something to put this man on, and he would have had means to take care of him. But the priest also would have had a problem. So this wasn't just the priest was lazy. This was the priest had a significant problem. This guy was stripped naked and injured and looked dead. If the priest, by the way, the priest were not allowed to help this person if it wasn't a Jew. It would have been unceremoniously clean, and he would have had to go through a whole bunch of junk he would have had to go back to Jerusalem, purify himself, go through all these things. And he might have gotten actually in huge trouble if he helped a dead body that wasn't a Jew. At the same time, if this man was a Jew, he had to help him. But he's in a bit of a position of a, between a, hard, a rock and a hard place, literally. He doesn't know anything about this man. Why? Because this man's back in the garden He's stripped naked, and he doesn't know if he's friend or foe. That's the most amazing thing about the intensity of the Middle East. Their racism isn't based on skin color. He didn't have the luxury of being able to tell based on what this guy looked like, whether he was friend or enemy. And so he's a real, real issue. I want to read this uh, this to you of the problem that this guy had. 
The wounded man could have been dead. If so, the priest who approached him would have become ceremonially defiled. And if defiled, he would need to return to Jerusalem, undergo a week-long process of ceremonial purification. It would take some time to arrange these things. Meanwhile, he could not eat from the tithes or even collect them. The same ban would apply to his family and his servants. So he's thinking of his family through all this, right? This is going to be a huge challenge for everybody in his life. Distribution to the poor would have also been impossible. What's more, the victim along the road might have been Egyptian, Greek, Syrian, Phoenician, in which case the priest was not responsible under the law to do anything. If the priest approached the beaten man, touched him, and the man later died, the priest would have been obliged to rend his robes. In so doing, would have been violating laws against the destruction of valuable property. The poor priest did not have an easy time trying to determine his duty under the law. After deciding that his ceremonial purity was too important to risk, he continued on his way. And so Jesus has a religious lawyer come up and challenge him on the law. And then Jesus gives an impossible problem for the law. So that's the priest. That's the character that first comes by. The second character is a Levite. The Levites work for the priests. In fact, on this journey from Jericho to Jericho, from Jerusalem, the priest is probably going first, and the Levite is following. It's probably the priest that this Levite is serving. And when this Levite sees that his priest didn't stop, there's no chance he's stopping. So the priest starts this trickle-down effect that basically no one else can stop. So if that happened, they would get into town, And what would the priest say if the Levite had stopped for this man and helped him? That that Levite would have been screwing over the priest. And it would have caused a trickle-down effect of all kinds of problems. The Levite probably knew that a priest was ahead of him on the road and may have been an assistant to that same priest. Since the priest set a precedent, the Levite could pass by with an easy conscience. So actually, the Levite is maybe the only person here with an easy conscience because the person in authority over him already set the precedent. Do we even realize the precedent that we set by our actions sometimes? Even in the most difficult places. I'm sometimes caught in positions, and maybe you can think of one in your own life, where you didn't know what the right, you're in a position of leadership, or you're in a position in your home, where you've got an impossible situation and not everyone's going to understand it, but whatever you decide to step into, the people behind you, you're actually choosing for them the direction to go. It's an amazing sense of responsibility. So Jesus isn't actually condemning the priest or the Levite. He's showing the tension of the religious system. He's showing the tension of the law. He's showing that this wasn't about inconvenience of helping your neighbor. He's showing the fear that grips humanity when your entire system provides you with an impossible choice. And that the risk of you saying yes to one thing will put you in an unbelievable, dangerous situation. And it will require everyone around you to be put in that situation. All of a sudden, it has a completely different connotation, doesn't it? This isn't about would you help someone hurting. This is about what are you afraid of? What kind of fear is put before us in impossible situations? The Samaritan in this story is the one that has no fear. 
and yet he's the one that actually has the most to lose. So what happens is this Samaritan then gives him everything he has. He gives him money. He gives him his own animal. He gives him clothes, oil, and healing balm. And then the Samaritan goes down to Jericho, where he's not allowed to go. And he's supposed to drop him at the edge of town. Why? Because he's not allowed in. He's not Jewish. But he goes in. Because what happens if he drops him at the edge of town is this man has nothing. And if this man has nothing, he's likely to be cared for to some degree because he might be Jewish. And then he's very likely to be brought into slavery to pay off his debt. And innkeepers are shady people in the ancient Near East. And that innkeeper is going to make sure he gets his debt. And so what this guy does is he risks his own life. In fact, it's very likely that this man gets beaten and even killed for entering into the Jewish village, even though he's helping this Jew out. And so he goes into the innkeeper and makes sure that not only am I giving you money, but I'm going to return if it's not enough money. I'm going to put my head on the line. And Jesus leaves the entire story with you not knowing what happens to him. And every single person is going, that guy probably died. So he takes the power structure. He takes the religious system. He takes this idea that you can justify yourself and achieve your own efforts to eternal life. And he says, just lay it all down, give everything, love your neighbor, and see how that goes for you. It's not possible. But if you want a story, it would look like this. And we think it's, this is just a good man that's doing an inconvenient task. This isn't an inconvenient task. This is facing fear front on and saying, I'm probably going to die for this. But I'm going to lay my life down for this person that I'm not even supposed to help. I'm not even allowed to help. While acknowledging the fact that in some ways, these poor men, the priest and Levite, were bound by an oppressive system that put them in an impossible situation. That this religious law that you're bringing before me is death. You want eternal life? It looks like this. The outsider will show you, but the insider can't. He who has eyes to see, ears to hear. That's the way of Jesus. Doesn't that make you want to fall in love with him all over again? And then the story is meant to show you this is the kind of Jew Jesus is. He's the kind of Jew that's like the Samaritan neighbor that lays his life down for you with no guarantees. And so there are seven things then that, that, that Bailey says is that what we take away from the house. We're meant to enter the rooms of this house and take some things away. The key question being, to whom do I become a neighbor? Anyone in need? Yes. We've all been taught that in Sunday school. Become a neighbor to anyone in need. But what we don't see is that Jesus is putting the cost so high that the expectation is your entire life. So who's my neighbor? The guy that's willing to die for you. The way of his kingdom is that you die if you want eternal life. You want to justify your eternal life. 
Let me tell you a story. You cannot possibly justify eternity. You can't do it. And the person that's not bound by fear, the person that's most free, is the person they think is their enemy, the outsider. So there are seven rooms in the house. Number one, and we'll close with this, eternal life. Eternal life is a gift, not an achievement. The lawyer is given a standard he can't meet. In the process, he has the opportunity to discover that he cannot earn eternal life for it, for it comes to him as a free gift. Secondly, becoming a neighbor. This, this religious lawyer's question ends up being, who is my neighbor? And it's the wrong question. He's challenged to ask, to whom must I become a neighbor? And the story of Jesus goes, your neighbor is anyone in need, regardless of language, religion, ethnicity. Here, compassion for the outsider has its finest expression in all of the scriptures. The ethical demands of this vision are limitless. And the entire church and church history and the sacrificial nature of going to the lost and to the Gentiles and to the nations is bound up in this story. The limits of the law, number three. Compassion reaches beyond the requirements of any law. The priest and the Levite cannot discover their duty solely by examining their books of code. It's not possible. Number four, racism. The religious and racial attitudes of the community are completely under attack. The story could have been located in Samaria with a good Jew rescuing a wounded Samaritan. Instead, it's a hated Samaritan who presumably rescues a wounded Jew. And number five, Jesus the teacher. Jesus' skills as a teacher start to emerge here in the Gospel of Luke. He does not answer the man's questions, but raises other questions, allowing the lawyer to answer his own questions. In the process, the lawyer is challenged to expand his understanding of what faithfulness actually requires of him. Notice in the story of, of the prodigal son, Jesus leaves unanswered questions. How is the older brother really going to respond from this point out to the father? And how is the younger brother going to receive being reaccepted into the family. Both of them will outwork the invitation of the Father. The same goes with this. Jesus doesn't give the answer of the response. He doesn't give the answer of what actually becomes of the Samaritan. You don't know what's going to happen. In the absolute risk, in the absolute invitation, in the absolute privilege of the Christian life, is that we don't know what it's going to look like to lay down our lives. But we take every fear that confronts us in any culture that we've been positioned, and we take everything we have, and we lay it down. We lay it down for people that we have no business serving. We have no business doing life with. And we take stock on how it's going to affect everyone around us and behind us. And we take care of them. We lay our lives down. Number six. The study of Christ himself. Christology. After the failure of the listeners, religious leaders, this saving agent breaks in from outside to save, disregarding the cost of that salvation. And then you begin to realize that Jesus is talking about himself. And finally... Number seven is the cross. The Good Samaritan offers a costly demonstration of unexpected love. He risks his life by transporting a wounded Jew 
into a Jewish town, spending the night there. The wounded man will never be the same. Jesus is demonstrating a part of the meaning of his own passion. Would you stand with me? You guys can come up and play to close. I want to pray over us, and let's respond. Just close your eyes and settle your heart, and just take a moment with the Spirit of God, if you would, and just receive the person of Jesus again. Receive his love afresh. Let the love of your heart wash over him again as he washes the love of his heart over you. Lord Jesus, we honor you. We love you. We're in love with you. We thank you for this picture, this house that we enter into to start to see and start to hear of the kind of ways that you're trying to show us are available to us. We pray for the dangers, the impossible situations, the places that don't feel like we've got any good option before us. And I pray for a release of confidence to remember who we are. The Jewish identity is completely wrapped up in this system that Jesus is breaking. Like some of us, we've got entire identities wrapped up in pictures of our own selves that need to break. Our own infatuation with who we're supposed to be keeps us from stepping into the life that we've been called to. Let the Samaritan break your image of who you are. Break your image of your capacity. Break the fear that's holding you captive. Break the fear of who you're leading and what the consequences are of the decisions that are before you. Build the confidence that I can step forward willing to lay my life down with uncertainty. The most certain aspect of the gospel is it gives you the certainty that I can enter into everything that is absolutely uncertain with confidence. That's when eternal life starts to shine. That's when the grace of the gospel that I did nothing to deserve this starts to lead my life and open my eyes. It starts to fill my house and open up rooms that I had never seen, that I had never lived in, that I hadn't believed. I spent, I spent the better part of this weekend thinking about this story, realizing that even as I confronted the religious leader, as I confronted the aspect that I couldn't achieve anything, I still wanted to study this passage, and I wanted to know what I was supposed to do. And I had this moment with Jesus again. Where he just says nothing. You're not supposed to do anything. Love me enough to love in the impossible. Love me enough to step into impossible situations. 
that impossible situation for you might be your marriage. It might be a parent. It might be a calling. And if you know that you can't possibly do it, maybe you finally discovered where Jesus comes in. That's the gospel. When we are trying to live lives that are possible, that are attainable, where we can justify something with our own actions and our own achievement, we will not get what's available. We will not live with impact, and we will not demonstrate the kind of kingdom that Jesus offers. Holy Spirit, step into our discomfort. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are a comforter so that we can enter lives of absolute discomfort with confidence.